Hello, listeners. This is Mary. I'm the Morgan in Merton and Morgan. And Alicia and I decided that we wanted to create a unique intro for this podcast. What we didn't anticipate when we made this particular podcast was that our city, um, where we live and work, Louisville, Kentucky, was about to become the site of ongoing days and nights of protests and riots due to the police killing of Breonna Taylor. Unfortunately, our city has a long history of racial tension, and that includes controversial school assignment plans aimed at helping to keep schools desegregated since we have one of the most segregated housing patterns in the U.S. Our students and our own kids have been out on the streets for the past days, and I believe we're heading into day 10 at the time that I'm recording this. When we went back to edit this podcast, we found ourselves with goosebumps and tears in our eyes, and that was for many reasons. Marianne Wolfe's discussion of the importance of empathy and internalized background knowledge of visualizing and more critical thinking processes and how they affect the quality of our thought and the effectiveness of our communication, that is all the more real to us now. We wanted to put this podcast in context from recording to its release and to let everyone know that we believe that literacy and access to excellent and equitable literacy education and instruction, well, that's a human right. That's why we do what we do. We hope that you will get a copy of Reader Come Home, The Reading Brain in a Digital World by Marianne Wolfe, and that you will read along with us. Thank you. Welcome to Academic Conversation with Martin and Morgan. I'm Alicia. I'm Mary. And we're sharing content that supports and empowers parents and teachers. In tonight's episode, we will be discussing letter number three, Deep Reading Is It Endangered, from the book Reader Come Home by Marianne Wolf. If you have missed the first two letters, you can check them out on our podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. Good evening, Mary. How are you? Hi, Alicia. We're still in this phone distance situation. I know. It's tough not seeing you. It really is. It really makes me feel, once again, how important it is to have face-to-face dialogue. You ready to launch into this? Yes. This chapter has been amazing. I can't wait. Right. We have been really overwhelmed with how complex this chapter is, but at the same time, we have been very excited about what we've learned in Reader Come Home, The Reading Brain in a Digital World. And Alicia told you the first two chapters are in the previous podcast. We talked about those. They're not called chapters. They're called letters, right? So this is letter three. And in this letter, uh, Marianne Wolfe talks about different types of reading, and she really focuses in on deep reading. And she helps us understand what that is and what the brain does when it reads deeply and makes a case for what's important about knowing that and what our actions need to be. So her overall question that guides this letter, and especially the first part is, is the quality of our attention in reading, which is the basis of our thinking. She says that our ability to read, our attention to reading is the basis for the quality of our thinking. So will that quality of attention change 
as our culture transitions from print-based to digital. And I think this is so timely because we've been doing so much digital instruction and so much digital learning. So what struck you about that first section? Well, she really goes into detail right in the very beginning about, and we talked about this in the first two letters, but it really takes years those deep reading processes to be formed. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not something that's going to happen overnight, and there are, are things that we can do and, and need to do. And, and as a society, she's, she actually says, make sure that you are being vigilant about the development of the deep reading process. And we have to do that at, um, like she said again, at the earliest age possible. And I think Mary and I working in schools, we see that. And, and we see the need for that. So I know for me, it, it really struck, struck a chord right at the beginning. And she kind of talks about the attention needed to develop this. And there are two types of ways to read that she talks about. She says, a deliberate focus with effort and attention. And then she talks about on the fly of attention, quick task switching, continuous monitoring of distraction, and that goes the quality. And the quality of our attention actually changes according to the mediums that we use. And Mary and I have kind of seen that as well. Your attention can go if if you just need to send out a quick email. You don't really need to read that with intent or deep reading processes. But if you are engaged in in a form of a letter or, or a novel that has to have some deliberate focus with your effort and attention that you really have to read, understand, maybe do some critical analysis on, that's a different form of attention. So I think the purpose of your reading will affect what type of attention you bring to that text. And we've talked about, too, um, that we can change that back and forth because we know how to do both, you know, because we came up when there wasn't digital reading. So that's not so hard for us because we had a chance to learn to read deeply. Right, and I think what Marianne is trying to reinforce is we don't develop those uh, two processes in those young readers, they have a chance of not developing those and being able to switch back and forth. So there could be some loss in the digital age if those deep reading processes are not are not developed. And we're going to talk about some ways that she has to do just that when she talks about the processes of the deep reading, depending on the type of reading that active, they activate in tandem, the reading brain circuit with mm-hmm. the input from one another and the one at the word level. Okay. I just wanted to ask you if you ever notice somebody reading um, maybe an email when they're used to using the quick on-the-fly process, but that email actually has a lot of dense information, and so they miss it. They don't retain or really understand what was in the email because they're used to email being something that they can do on the fly. Yeah, but now that you say that, yes, actually, there's there's a lot of important information mm-hmm. in it. I know that I will get questions about an email that I've sent if it has a lot of information. Right. And I'll get the same questions for multiple people. <laughs> so, yeah, I never even thought about that, but now that makes perfect sense. I just thought That's about why. it, too. Cause you we... know, because you're like, well, it's an email, but now that makes sense then. If they're just kind of, you know, skimming and scanning. Right, and that's what you usually can do with email. So is email really the best way to send a lot of information out, you know, when people are automatically going to go to that on-the-fly-of-attention type reading? I mean, we fall into that, too. It's interesting. So she does talk about the processes of deep reading, like you mentioned, 
And depending on the type of reading you're doing, there are a lot of complex processes that activate at the same time in your reading brain circuit. She helps us understand why this is going to take time, because time is at a premium for all of us everywhere, and especially in the classroom where time is really tough to get. So saying these processes take a long time to develop, she's making a case for why that is. And not only do the processes of reading happen together in the reading brain circuit, but they're informing each other. And they're also being informed by the word level. So whatever it is that you're reading and taking in, that's also part of that process. So in that part, she talks about in the deep reading processes, she talks about imagery and she talks about empathy. And she also talks about background knowledge. And I think you and I both were really struck by this section, but in different ways. So do you want to talk a little bit about, I know empathy was really something that spoke to you. What were you thinking about that? She talked a lot about being able to put yourself in going deep within the book and making sure that you're, you're able to be put in that, that place of maybe the character. And so you can feel what the character is feeling and you can understand the point of view of that character, but not not just when you read, but it transfers out into the real world. If, if you can take on the feelings of a character in a book or a person in, in their biography, let's say it could be non-fictional as well as a character, a fictional character, but if you can take on their emotions, you're, you're better able to understand someone else and understand what they come from and where they come from and where their point of view, their perspective. And it was really interesting to me. She makes a point where you can really understand and take on a perspective. She calls it the act of guessing over. Um, you can understand their imagining, their thought, and kind of come back to yourself after you've done that. It's kind of a switching back and forth. And I think it's, it's really transferable into like I said, the real world. Mm -hmm. And students are having a hard time now doing that and understanding one another. I'm not I'm not so sure that they are going deep when they're reading. And so as a society, as we have seen, unfortunately, especially in the last few weeks, a lot of unfortunate events happening. We don't seem to have an empathetic society right now or, or as much as used to. And, and there was a study done that said that a study done at Stanford University that showed a 40% decline in empathy in our young people over the last two decades. And the lady who, who did the study attributes the loss of empathy largely to their inability to navigate the online world without losing track of their real-world face-to-face relationship. And so, yeah, I just thought that was uh, to see a percentage in print. Right. And and then there was actually a study done. We see it because we're in schools, I think, and, and we do a lot of social and emotional work, and, and we have those lessons because they're needed mm -hmm. and because we, we see firsthand that one student can't always empathize with another. But the connection of, of reading a book and, and being able to share a character, their life, and, and how a child can take on another person's emotions and how important reading is to doing that and how that's a deep reading process really just struck such a chord with me as an educator. It, it really just makes a lot of sense. And it made me kind of look at our world right now. And if we don't do something, then it's not going to be good. I think she makes a really good case for 
the fact that books are a safe place to work those things out. You know, trying out different personas and trying out different relationships and trying out just different decisions, like in a safe way. It's a place where you can do anything. And then, like you said, you pass over into that book and then you come back, you come back to yourself. And a lot of the experiences that you have in that book affect your brain similarly to actually doing those things. So it's a safe place to try to work those things out. And I feel like when kids, especially when they get into conflict, they don't have that. They don't have that even willingness or maybe interest in trying to see the other person's point of view. I see it as I need to win this conversation. I need to win this battle. You know, it's pretty much where they come from a lot of times. Is that what you see too? Yeah, yeah. And she poses a question. And here that is, is interesting. What will happen to young readers who never meet and begin to understand the thoughts and feelings of someone totally different? Mm-hmm. And we, we're kind of seeing that. And, and I, I think we, we are at a point now where we can definitely do something about it. And the fact that we can, like you were just saying, using books to do that, I think is a, an opportunity that, that we have. We can definitely change it. But at the same time, it's a deep reading process, I think, is just even better. There's just so many connections to make. So I think that the point you're making about understanding people different from us speaks to current interest in books for diverse readers, books that are culturally relevant for lots of different kids, and being able to share those stories with kids by reading them and sharing them is one thing, but also having kids be able to get into those books themselves so they can start to read it and they can start to interpret it on their own. I think that's what she's advocating for. She's saying that developing these skills takes a long time. It's not something that kids know because they're on a certain reading level. It takes a lot of reading. After you learn to read, it takes a lot of reading to develop these more sophisticated processes. I know the one that hit me really hard was background knowledge, because she does such an excellent job of putting what feels like abstract terms into a definition that makes sense, and that is from her own research and learning. So it's just really a treasure of many different ways of thinking about things that you've been taught as a reading teacher. You know, background knowledge is important. Yes, we know. But she takes it so far beyond that, explaining why that is so. And I have a lot of kids who are English learners, as I always say, and a lot of the comprehension issues that they have are due to having different background knowledge than the books that they're being given in school. It's not that they don't have it. They just have different background knowledge. So one quote that she put in this section of the book was the quality of our thought depends on the quality of our background knowledge. That's true. It leaks right into our understanding of comprehension, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. You can't, a kid can't understand what they're reading if they don't have any hooks, if they don't have any conceptual hooks to hang on, hang it on. And so as I was reading this section, I was thinking, okay, She's singing my song, but why Why is she focusing on this so much? And what she was really getting into was that as a society, she was saying we're starting to 
rely a lot. I wouldn't even say starting to. I think this started a good while ago, but um, on external, what she calls external platforms of knowledge. So to me, that means if you ask a kid to read a book about, you know, or talk to them about reading a book with lots of information about something, sometimes you'll hear, well, why do I have to read that when I can just Google it? Or why do I have to look that up, you know, in a book? Or why do I need all that when I can just go and find a video and watch that and then I'll know it? Um, she says if we rely on those external sources of knowledge too early, then we can really alter the relationship that's forming between what we read and what we know. And she says that without sufficient background knowledge, the rest of the deep reading processes will be deployed less often. So in other words, they need to work in tandem. They have to work together to go to those deepest levels. If they're not working together, then the learning is not going to be as rich and it's not going to be as deep. And so it's just really interesting because if you don't have those background knowledge sources built within you, then you don't really have the ability to tell what's real and what's not real. If you're just constantly looking it up on the internet, then how do you know what the internet's, what do you have to compare that to? You know, what, what is your reference point? She also talks about haves and have nots. The people who have that rich background knowledge are going to be in a better position to think about and understand what they're reading than people who don't have that. So we're not all equal on the same footing because we all have a Google window. It's still going to be a fact that people need to develop their background knowledge. So um, the people who read more and who read widely and often are going to be the ones who have that. That really, that was so profound, I think, because when we talk about having to look something up whenever you're reading something so that you have the background knowledge to understand it. Why do you want to read things? I mean, that's, I've done that. I'm, I know you have too. I've read something that was so dense that I had to have my computer open, you know, so that I could look up something as I'm reading it. Or if I'm reading it on Kindle, I can keep looking things up as I'm reading because I don't have a lot of background on the topic. And that is laborious to think that somebody would have to do that all the time because they don't have background knowledge. I mean, it seems like it's going to be something that starts a spiral of just not reading and then you're going to have less background knowledge built. It's just going to feed on itself. And, and what it, it makes me think about are the readers that will just read something and take everything that isn't print as truth. Right. And as readers, we are constantly questioning. I, mean, I know that you and I have read things and then we'll text each other and say, did you read them? What do you think about that? Because we have that background knowledge allows us to start to question. Right. How do we think about that? Which evokes emotion, right? Mm-hmm. And so if they don't have background knowledge, they're not going to question, which means they're just going to take it for what it is, whether it's factual or not. Yes. And that, that to me, I don't, I don't like that. It, it, it makes me pause. It's like a warning sign for me. I want 
kids, readers, to, to grow up and be able to make their own decisions and and take a piece of information and, you know, kind of analyze it, break it apart, and then come up with their own conclusion because they they have enough information to do that instead of just, well, this is what was in print, so it must be true. for me. Yeah, and that goes back to a lot of things we've talked about before as far as um, in the digital learning arena, are we teaching kids how to read digital information critically or are we just letting them go at it and not really thinking about is this source reliable, is this author someone who's trustworthy, what are their credentials, what's the point of view that this author has and why. I think we start to touch on some of those things with our standards, but we don't always connect the dots for kids so that they understand. And as we're talking about this, I'm just thinking um, my son, who probably wouldn't like it if he knew how much I talk about him on this podcast, um, he tends to go too far the other way, I think. He's, He's a teenager, and everything he sees online, he says, oh, that's fake. Oh, that's not real. Like, he's seen so many things that aren't real that he almost overly judges things as, you know, there's a cynicism there that's not based on knowledge. It's based on having seen so many things that aren't real, you know? And I think that's yeah. that's concerning too. I think, well, everything you read isn't fake just because it seems, you know, hard to believe. It's not necessarily not true. You have to have a, a way of making that determination. Yeah, I see a cynicism that's not really based on knowledge. It's more based on all the trickery that goes on, you know, on on the internet at his age level and the things that kids, you know, share around. So I don't know that that worries me, too. I want to just read this, excuse me, quote, absent the checks and balances provided by both our prior knowledge content and our analytical processes, we run the risk of digesting information without questioning whether the quality or prioritization of the information available to us is accurate and free from external motivations and prejudices. When we talk about societal impact, I think like you were saying with empathy and people being able to dialogue and talk about difficult things and put themselves in another person's shoes, I think this is another point that has huge impact for our society. If we don't have that prior knowledge content and then are able to apply analytical processes to it, then we don't know how to interpret our world. And you have to be able to be a deep reader and have those deep reading processes in order to do just that, right? Right. And And you have to have time to develop those. (laughs) It keeps going back to time. It's not just, you know, when you're out of, when you're in middle school, it's going to, it's years and over time and, and on different mediums. And so she goes into kind of talking about the, and you just kind of set the, the stage for that, the, the deep reading analytical processes. And she talks about um, analytical reasoning and being, being able to infer. And we do talk about that early on in, in kindergarten. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to read a quote that she has. Deep reading requires the use of analytical reasoning and inference if we are to uncover the multiple layers of meaning in what we read. And so we know reading is about meaning, and but we have to be able to do all of those things. And, and I think it's, it's, 
you can't take on the emotions of a character or a person in a in an informational article. You can't really info what's happening to them because you haven't felt that. You don't know. You don't have the background knowledge. All of those things kind of work together mm-hmm. for me to be able to reason what's happening. Right? Yes. It, it, it all, which is what makes it a deep process of reading. Yes, and I I think it's so important here that she talks about inferring and inference because how many teachers, how many times have you seen standards, Alicia, about inferring and seeing teachers get up and do a lesson on inferring and then give kids an inferring activity to do and then go on to the next thing? It's not that simple. It's much deeper than that. And the way that she lays it out and explains what that what that does, I mean, I just think if someone hasn't read this and they're interested in teaching reading and especially how this works, they should definitely pick up the book. I mean, it's going to take time. It's a deep reading process book. It's a deep reading process book, but going back to, to the inferring, I just have to ask you a question, Mary. Do you think inferring can be taught with a worksheet? Uh, let me think about that. And I'm not, I'm not being funny. I know you're not, because the scenario that I described, I was thinking of a worksheet, because that's what I usually see. I see somebody get up and do a mini lesson on inference, you know, a quick, quick introduction, and then give, solicit some, you know, feedback from the kids, and then say, okay, now do it, do inferencing. And that, yeah, that usually is in a worksheet form and that I've seen it. And sometimes people will have kids use sticky notes and books, you know, and things. And I think that's amazing, but they still don't often come back to it and bring everybody back together and say, why is this important? Why did we do this? What, how does this help you as a reader? How about as a writer? If it helps you as a reader, how is it going to help you as a writer? You know? Right. I asked you that question not to be funny, but just just to kind of make make a point too, because it's, we've been talking about Mary and we'll work and have to talk about the reading brain circuit at the sentence level, at the word level. Mm-hmm. So when I, I think about using that comprehension strategy of, an, of being able to infer, I think about that. Like we infer a picture, we infer a paragraph, mm-hmm. we can infer what's happening in a sentence or even in one word, right? Right. So you can take inferencing to the word level. Mm-hmm. So if it's that deep, my point being a worksheet is, cannot take us there. And that was my point. Yeah, but I'll be honest with you. I've read, you know, the books about comprehension strategies you know we've read all those books when they first came out the ones that really taught us you know for the first time what these strategies are and I always knew inferring was a strategy and I read those things and I thought yeah that's important I get it but Marianne Wolf talks about it in a way that's takes it even further she explains how the brain inferences and why it's important to all these other processes and to deep understanding so I think she took that foundation and she just built on it. Yeah. Totally reiterates the fact it can't be done on a sheet. It you, can't you be done on a have, sheet. Right. And she she reiterates that so beautifully without saying it, you know? Yeah. But I think we have to ask ourselves, too, why do teachers resort to the sheets? Where Where does that come from? Why do they do that? What do you think? I think maybe 
the teacher knowledge, they mm-hmm. still understand, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the more you read, and I mean, it it takes just just like it takes deep reading processes years to develop. I feel like it takes it takes teaching practices years to develop. Yes, I mean, I certainly didn't learn this overnight, and I I, I don't know a teacher who. Does, I mean, there are great brand new teachers mm-hmm. that I've seen, but I think. You know, the more you read and the, the more you use your strategies and, and your practices, the better you become. Like it takes years to develop your craft. That's right. And it also takes um, a desire to improve and knowing that there's more than what you currently know or that might be offered on in an activity or, you know, whether it's on a computer, it's a worksheet, whatever it is one isolated incident or a couple of times doing an activity about inferencing isn't going to help kids develop that process so that they own it and that they can deploy it as needed. I think about how we used to, you know, think of all those strategies separately. You know, when we first became familiar with them, we would think, oh, we teach this strategy and this strategy. And then we learn, no, that's not how we think. That's not how we read. We have to, we have to integrate that because that's how the brain works. And so you know, over time, I just think because people are getting a better understanding of the brain, obviously, Marianne Wolf has an incredible understanding of the brain that we can do better because we can know better. She talks about critical analysis and she says that this doesn't just happen and we need critical analysis to be able to evaluate an author's assumptions and author's interpretations and an author's conclusions. And With that in mind, critical analysis and critical reasoning is the best way to help the next generation not to be manipulated by superficial information, whether that is in in text or on a screen. And she continues to talk about how she's not advocating for one or the other. She thinks they're both, you know, digital reading is important and so is reading you know, traditional text, all of it is important. She's asking what happens if we do too much of one type of reading, which is that on-the-fly type of reading. That's how I interpret her, you know, thoughts about, she's not asking us to choose or get rid of technology. No, I think, I think she's, she's just um, giving the message that we, we need both mm-hmm. and not only to be a strong reader, but that literacy really does affect us as a society. And I think that's really, really important and powerful. And she kind of wraps up the chapter. Um, she has a illustration here on the last page of, of letter number three of the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere, because if you listen to letters one and two, we kind of talked about how both hemispheres are activated mm-hmm. um, when you're reading. And she says, deep reading significantly changes what we perceive, what we feel, and what we know. And in so doing, alters, informs, and elaborates the circuit itself. Which I think sums it up. Yeah, that whole thing of what happens in your brain, you know, what fires together, wires together. As you're building that circuit, what you're, the things you're doing are reinforcing and, you know, constructing that circuit. It's really incredible. It's a huge responsibility. You know, when we think about it, our jobs are every bit as important as we thought they were going to be when we were 
teachers to be. You know, most of us got into it because we wanted to have a positive impact. We wanted to make change. We wanted to help. We, you know, those things are still right in front of us, especially now. And especially thinking about what we experienced during this pandemic with all of our kids being on the computer, all of them being um, having to read a lot of directions and do a lot of work while interpreting on their own what was expected of them as readers. And you could see how difficult that was for a lot of the students, especially the younger ones. Yeah, and how they missed that human connection and sitting in front of you when you're reading to them and. Mm-hmm. Having, having that the conversation online just didn't have the same feel as doing that. So I think both things are, are very needed. The print is still needed in the digital world. We're in the digital world. So we it have, fits the boat. We have to position ourselves in it and not necessarily say, oh, it was better when, you know, that's, that's immaterial. We can't, the clock is not going to turn back to times when we didn't have all this, so... And there, we're only in letter number three, but I just, it just, re, and it, even just in, in letter three, I think there's nine letters total, it just reiterates to me that as educators, we still need to look at the science and really pay attention to the science because learning is really science-based. I mean, I know those terms are thrown out there, but mm-hmm. this book just reiterates that to me even more. Mm-hmm of how, how important it is to pay attention to the science. And, and we it's wish, really brain-based. Yeah, we definitely wish there was more of that offered to pre-service teachers yeah. because trying to learn all this on the job is also where I think some of the worksheet-type thinking comes in because, honestly, yeah. you can get so overwhelmed just trying to keep your um, management in place and, you know, respond to all the different interruptions and distractions and things that happen if you don't, have that knowledge, at least the beginnings of that knowledge firmly in place, then you're going to have to resort to whatever you can to try to keep things going. We know that because we've all been there. Letter four, I just want to mention coming up, is a really interesting letter because it's about attention and it's about novelty and you know basically how our brain responds to distraction I think it's again it's really fascinating and it made me think of that when you said the kids missed seeing their teachers face to face I think the zoom and the google meets were fun at first because they were novel you know it was that thing that we're going to talk about in letter four that humans need novelty and we have to pay attention to what's novel because that's how we've survived over, you know, evolution. And so the kids liked it at first because it was different, but then they quickly seemed to be kind of, oh, (laughs) I think I'd rather see my friends, you know, I think I'd rather talk to my teacher. So she's going to talk about that in letter four. And I think that's all important because this whole idea of the brain on um, distraction And people trying to get attention from young people, especially all the different ways that distracting them are built into some of the apps and the things that they're using. It's worth knowing as a parent, as a teacher, as a caregiver, as anyone working with kids. It's really worth knowing what people are already learning about that. That's evolving as we speak 
there are new discoveries being made. So we're going to get into that next time, right? That's right. I can't wait. Okay. Well, that's it for our podcast on Reader Come Home, The Reading Brain in a Digital World, Letter 3. Um, please join us next time for Letter 4, and we'll see you next time. All right. Bye. Hello, listeners. This is Mary. I'm the Morgan in Merton and Morgan. And Alicia and I decided that we wanted to create a unique intro for this podcast. What we didn't anticipate when we made this particular podcast was that our city, um, where we live and work, Louisville, Kentucky, was about to become the site of ongoing days and nights of protests and riots due to the police killing of Breonna Taylor. Unfortunately, our city has a long history of racial tension, and that includes controversial school assignment plans aimed at helping to keep schools desegregated, since we have one of the most segregated housing patterns in the U.S. Our students and our own kids have been out on the streets for the past days, and I believe we're heading into day 10 at the time that I'm recording this. When we went back to edit this podcast, we found ourselves with goosebumps and tears in our eyes, and that was for many reasons. Marianne Wolfe's discussion of the importance of empathy and internalized background knowledge of visualizing and more critical thinking processes and how they affect the quality of our thought and the effectiveness of our communication, that is all the more real to us now. We wanted to put this podcast in context from recording to its release and to let everyone know that we believe that literacy and access to excellent and equitable literacy education and instruction, well, that's a human right. That's why we do what we do. We hope that you will get a copy of Reader Come Home, The Reading Brain in a Digital World by Marianne Wolf, and that you will read along with us. Thank you.